Go ahead and open your Bible uh, to Acts 15. Uh, we're, like Stan said, we're continuing our series, uh, just looking at the book of Acts and how the gospel has gone forward uh, through the, the church and how God has been, um, from the time of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, his ascension, how he has, through the church, spread the gospel uh, throughout the world, starting as Stan just quoted the passage in Jerusalem and then Judea, and then into the ends of the earth. And what's been happening lately in Acts is they have been, uh, the gospel has been going to the ends of the earth. In fact, right about chapter 13, what happened was it gone to Judea, and it's kind of like these concentric circles, and now it's finally going to the ends of the earth. And so what's happening here is just this new profound reality. What they've been waiting for, what they've been looking for is finally happening. And so there's this kind of overjoyed, you know, kind of tone throughout the text as we get here. But then as soon as it seems like everything's going exactly as it should, as things are, the church is moving forward with purpose, they're united, something gets in the way. Division. Division. There starts to be infighting, there starts to be, this, there's an issue that comes up and they, they divide and they start to debate it. And so often what happens when God starts to move, isn't that what happens? The division comes up. Something gets in the way. Something kind of brings it to a screeching halt. But here's the thing. Often I think we know this is kind of like, okay, church world, division comes in. Yeah, same song and dance, unfortunate. What are you going to do? But what happens here is even though they have this intense division that, that, that begins, by the end of this chapter, in verses 31 and 32, it says that the church was united, they were encouraged, they were strengthened and built up. What happens? How in the world do they go from division to built up? And here's the reason why I think this is important is because in our day, we are now in a time, I don't think I'm going to surprise anyone or everyone's going to be like, what are you talking about? Uh, that we're in a little bit of a time of division as a nation, as a country, as a culture, and that is beginning, it can easily creep into the church. These are times of tearing down and division. And they're just like in the early church, and so we need the wisdom that's in this passage. And what we're going to see is how to build up in times of tearing down. And how we can be a people who build up in Christ in the midst of a time and a season of tearing down and division. So we're going to look at first is what was tearing them apart? What was the issue underneath that was really tearing them apart as a church that was threatening their unity? And then second, what could tear us apart? What could tear us apart? How was it looking like in our day? How's this coming up? And then lastly, how to build up in a time of tearing down. How do we build up in the time of tearing down in a season like this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, in times like this where it seems like there's just so much confusion and chaos and division, and Lord, we feel it. We feel ourselves being pulled against one another, not standing side by side, but Lord, fighting face to face. We feel that tension. And so, Lord, I ask that this morning you would show us what it looks like to be a people who build up in Christ in the midst of a time of tearing down. 
Lord, we know that we don't have this wisdom. Lord, we, we feel even just starting to talk about, starting to talk about what's going on around us, starting to talk about whether it's politics or unrest, social unrest, whatever it might be, Lord, we feel just the impossibility of even being able to, to address it. And so, Lord, we know we don't have the wisdom, we are not sufficient, but Lord, you are. And Lord, I ask that you would help us to see that in the midst of everything, underneath all of it, we can have one thing that is not chaotic. And that is to know that Christ is enough. And to know that that is true for one another. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see this. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what was tearing them apart? Uh, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, we started seeing this thing called the first missionary journey of Paul. This is kind of the first great endeavor. There's going to be three of them, and the first one's coming to an end here. But when it started, it went to the Gentiles. This gospel went out to the Gentiles. What we saw was as the gospel went out, they saw that this was this gospel of grace. And it wasn't like all the other pagan religions where it was something that you had to do in order to save yourself. That it was this grace that God has extended to people. And, and that's, that led to this overjoyed, just, just feeling joy in the fact that it's not by anything that I have to do, but it's by God's grace alone. And so we saw this again and again, almost like these flash mobs that would break out in the churches when they would first hear about this and they would hear about the grace of God. And then after that, there's so much joy in that that then the church continues to spread. It's almost making a mess because so many people are just overjoyed with this reality and discovering it anew. And then what's happening is Paul then is leading that and they begin to persecute Paul. And so they stone Paul and we saw that last week. But the crazy thing was, Paul said, this is so worth it that it's even worth being stoned. So what's happened is they found something that's even worth, worth giving their very lives for. And you see this again, joy, joy. And that's what's where chapter 14 ends. Just this sense of what have we discovered? What have we been given? This incredible reality. And then chapter 15, verse 1. Somebody at the back of the room, you can imagine, it's kind of like they're overjoyed. They're talking about the grace of God, and can you believe this is real? And then you hear, <clears throat> actually, there's something more you must do. Verse 1, it says that some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what they heard was it's grace, it's the grace of God, it's Jesus has done it alone, it's 100% what he's done, nothing that we have to do, and they come in and they say, no, there is something that you have to do, and what they do is they point to circumcision. Now, I probably don't really have to explain circumcision much to you, I hope. Um, <laughs> awkward. Uh, but I think we all understand what circumcision is. Now, the question is, though, we understand it in the 21st century because we understand it's like, well, it's just kind of hygienic, you know, so everyone does it. But in their day, the reason why, see, they were correct. They, they demanded that if you're going to be right before God, if you're going to be in good standing with God, you must be circumcised. If Jesus hadn't come onto the scene, that would actually be true. They would be right. See, what happened was God said that if my people, they will be a people who obey my law. And one of the parts of that law was a command to be circumcised, to bear a mark, a physical mark that said that they trusted Yahweh for their salvation. The only thing is that that law that they had to fulfill, 
that they had to keep in order to be saved. And see, what would happen in the Old Testament, if you didn't keep the law, then you would have to go to the, with the sacrificial law, and then you'd have to offer sacrifices, and that's actually how then you could find salvation. But you have to fulfill this whole system. When Jesus came, though, Jesus fulfills the law. So now you no longer have to be circumcised. I mean, you can be circumcised if you want to knock yourself out, right? Uh, which literally you would have to knock yourself out if you were going to be circumcised. Uh, <laughs> but it's no longer physical circumcision, but it's circumcision of the heart that God looks for. That's a heart that is marked by faith in Jesus, not just flesh. See, God had made his commands clear. He had made the demand clear. If you want to know God, if you want to be in his presence, if you want to be in his holy and righteous presence, then you must be holy and righteous. That was clear. That was completely, you must be holy and righteous. You must be perfect because God is, when he says, I'm going to save you, I'm going to give you salvation. He's saying, I'm going to give you something that is not of this world, that is of me, that is true and good and beautiful and glorious, that's untainted by sin and the fall and selfishness and lust and theft and hatred. And God says, I can't just say, well, I'll make an exception for you and you, and we'll just sweep it under the rug because a, a millennia from now it's going to come out. And then everyone, heaven is lost for everyone. And so God says, you must meet my perfect standards. But here's the thing. God said, you must meet this demand, but at the same time, God met the demand. When his perfect, righteous, holy son entered the world and died our death, and now we look by faith to him. See, it's not that we do anything. It's we couldn't do anything for perfection. But Jesus does it all. And because Jesus does it all, that means that we look 100% to him, that there's nothing else that we add to it. And that's how we're saved. And so what that means, what Peter's going to say in verse 11, is he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, Salvation is by faith alone through the grace of Christ alone. Full stop, period. Nothing else. Nothing else. And if you think about, I mean, just the hammer this home, that's why they're overjoyed. Because for the first time ever, if you remember this, if when you first came to Christ, when there's that idea that we had, because one of the things we've been looking at is that every religion in the world, every false religion, what it says at some point is it says, you must do enough. You must clean yourself up. You must get your act together. And when you do that, then just maybe, maybe, God will give you his grace. He'll approve of you. He'll be pleased enough with you that he'll accept you. But the good news of the gospel is that in Jesus Christ, God has paid the payment he has given us 100% his grace. He places it upon us. The gospel says, God loves you. He's given you grace. Therefore, then obey. Completely flips it around. And that means that your life is not filled just wondering if you have to jump through more hoops and climb more ladders to prove yourself to God. So you can imagine this, the joy that they're experiencing at that point. 
And then when they step in, the men say, it's not enough. You must do something else. Think about what this would have sounded like. Think of what this would sound like in our day. You're not a Christian. You're not really a Christian, are you? Unless you do this. And you can imagine that they're saying, no, you don't understand. I've, I've heard about this grace, and there's this grace that God has given me in Jesus Christ, and it's by that alone. Don't you understand the good news of that? And I, I finally, for the first time, I found someone who's not dangling this thing from my past over me. I'm not living, waking up in the middle of the night wondering if, when, if that thing, if that, the thing I've done, if, if really I've atoned for that, if I've really done enough to get rid of that, if I've really done enough because of all these broken relationships, all these pains that I've caused, I know I'm undeserving. And I'd given up until I heard of the good news of grace in Jesus Christ. No! He's not enough. You see, at the heart of what they're saying is Jesus is not enough. If you don't have the circumcision, if you don't have everything else, if you don't have the other demands, it's nothing, it's no good. He's not enough. You see, the problem was that they, not so much that they held up circumcision to really, and saw it, had such a high view of circumcision, the, the issue was that they actually had such a low view of the grace of Christ that they didn't think it was enough. And then, of course, the question becomes, then what is enough? Right? I think we've all kind of maybe played this game spiritually where it's like, you know, what is enough? If you're trying to prove yourself to somebody, it's like you do so much. And it's kind of like, you know, if you've ever had like a sales job, where you're like, oh, I met my sales quota. And they're like, great job. Now here's your new, that's your new benchmark for next month, right? You're like, I broke a record. Oh, here's your new benchmark. And it just keeps creeping up. It's the same thing spiritually. Because what happens is we begin to wonder, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Maybe I've done enough. Maybe I've done enough. And there's always more demands that you have to do and you have to meet. And so this is actually what happens to the progression from verse 1 to verse 5. If you look at verse 5, remember back in verse 1, it was just, you have to be circumcised. By the time we get to verse 5, they have these debates about it, and they're starting to call together the council, and they say, actually, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now we're actually just expanding it, and more and more and more is being added because you never know when the standard is not set and it's not done away with in Jesus Christ, the goalposts are always moving. And so the apostles know it won't stop with circumcision. If Jesus isn't enough, they'll just add demand after demand after demand. And for the Gentiles, it'll be just this never-ending treadmill of trying to prove themselves adding demand upon demand, trying to jump through hoops and prove that they can run fast enough, that they can keep up, that they're good enough. It's the Alice in Wonderland running, running just, running faster and faster just to stay right where I am. And that's the thing. Because if Jesus isn't enough, then you'll never be enough. 
and you'll never do enough. And that's exactly what's threatening to tear apart the church. Because what's happening here is you have a group who's saying, don't you see, you haven't done enough. You don't belong here. Unless you do this, unless you add this thing to Jesus, it can be all about Jesus, it's Jesus' church, but unless you do this, unless you add this, then you don't really belong here. You really think you're a Christian? And you can imagine how much that just tears apart the church, that tone. And so that's why the apostles see this as such a big deal and they call a council. If you think about it, there are all kinds of things in Acts. Like there are things today in Christianity we debate like, none of us are probably debating circumcision. If you are, I can give you a couple other better things to debate. Uh, but there are all kinds of things we've already passed in the book of Acts that are, they've encountered as a church, like things like speaking in tongues and miraculous gifts and all the things that we tend to debate. And they were fine. They kept moving along. But when this comes, they say, wait, time out. We've got to stop this thing. We've got to get everyone together. And we've got to figure this out right now. We've got to put this to bed. And the reason is because this is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ, to experience joy in him, to have life in him, and then with that, how to relate to one another. This would completely tear apart the church because it would rip the foundation out from under it. But before we go there, because we're gonna look next at the council and we're going to look at how did they build up in the midst of this tearing down that's happening. How do they begin to build them up in Christ? But first we have to, I think we have to think about how does this happen in our day? Because I think there is a version of this right now in our cultural moment, this time of division, where we're struggling to see one another. We're struggling to see Christ as enough for one another. So let's go there. Uh, what could tear us apart? For the Pharisees... See, here's the thing. The Pharisees, their statement would have been, unless, as it is here, unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. Unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. And again, we're probably not, we think, okay, that's archaic. What do I do with that? What, what does that really have to do with today? Okay, so I won't do that. I won't go around to people and say, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Okay, is that good, Pastor? Right? We think, is that all it is? But here's the thing. We tend to think that we're not like those Pharisees. We tend to think those are those old religious kind of stodgy guys, but we don't really do that. Now, here's the thing. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we often in the modern world, we say the same kind of thing about the law. Like, oh, we're modern people. We don't really do that Old Testament law thing. We're kind of beyond that. We don't really struggle with that. But we saw that what we often do in the modern world is we have a modern law that we place on ourselves. We're really, really good about finding a law and saying, well, if I do this, then I'll be enough. And I think we need to reverse that as well. That not only do we have law, a law like that that's often placed on us and we buy into it, but also we tend to place a law like that on others. We tend to add things and demands that we say, if you do this, then you'll really be a Christian. See, here's the thing. In the church, we know kind of how these things go about. We know the traditional version of this. The traditional version is something like, you know, unless you uh, dress a certain way, talk a certain way, talk about certain things, you're around the right kind of people, you parent the right way, you spend your money in this way, you 
you school your children in this way, whatever it might be, fill in the blank. Unless you blank, you're not really a Christian, are you? We know how this works. We know how toxic it is as well. And how much it tears down the church. But I think there's something right now that is beginning kind of subtly, or it's not so subtle, I just don't think we realize how much it's making its way into the church. Something that we're adopting. And it goes like this. It's a similar phrase, unless you blank, you can't be approved by me, but what if it's, unless you vote for my guy, you're not really a Christian. What if when it's, unless you join my movement, sign off on my ideology, then you're not really a Christian. Am I the only one who feels that? Who goes on their social media wall and, and maybe, maybe I'm living in a completely different universe. But every day when I go on to anywhere, what I'm seeing is again and again from both right, left, whatever kind of sides you want to divvy up here, both sides saying unless you agree with me. If you think, unless you think like me, unless you follow my way, you act like me, you sign off on the dotted line with my viewpoint, unless, then you're not really a Christian. And it comes with a whole bunch of different kind of arguments. And the thing that's so wearing, because I want to say here, I know I'm saying we do this to others and we have to look at our hearts and how we do this. We also, I realize that it's also so pressing on us right now where we're hearing it because you'll hear it on one extreme where you're like, it's this view, vote for this guy. And then they make an argument and then it's like, oh yeah, I guess if it's a Christian, that's not a bad argument. And then you come over here and it's the other guy like diametrically opposed as far apart as you could get <laughs> right now. And then it's like, Oh, that's actually a decent, and at the end of it, unless you do this, you're not a Christian. And many of us feel that pull in between them, but at the same time, what we're doing is we're so tempted to do that to others. Unless you blank, you're not really a Christian. And I think we... We know why this is so destructive. In fact, Peter puts it into words in verse 10. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? This is how Peter, Peter describes this, when we, this dynamic of what we do. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? See, what he's saying there is he, you put a yoke on their neck. See, what it should be is, remember, what he's probably doing is he's alluding to where Jesus says elsewhere, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, what Jesus says is there is a standard that you are going to be judged by, and it is God's holiness and his righteousness, and if you want to be right with God, then the only way is to bear my yoke to put me upon you, and my yoke is easy, be, and it is light because it is grace. I fulfill the law. I die your death. I rise from the grave where you can't so that you will. And so your life is lived with like putting my yoke upon you and treading the fields in a way that 
is easy and light because there's not a burden upon you to try to do it for yourself. And what we do, Peter is saying, is instead of saying Jesus is enough, what we say is Jesus is not enough. And unless you put this burden on you, unless you put my demand on you, unless you carry it and you carry it until the point that you prove yourself to me, then you do not belong. And he says that is completely a gospel from hell. See, often I know what we know better than to say is we won't say like, hey, if you hold that view, I'm not going to say they can't be saved. But I think often the way that we do this, what we are saying is you can be approved by God, but not by me. That's true. You can be, you can be good with God. You can have that viewpoint. You can be good by, with God. You can be approved by him, but not by me. He may approve of you, but I don't. And this is why Peter says, don't place a test. Don't put God to the test. Because what's happening there. And I'm not saying approve of their actions, things like that. I'm saying to look at them and to say that what is most important about you, what I see and what is true about you is that you are in Christ, that you are a brother and sister in the faith. And to start there. And I know from there, there are a thousand potential debates and conversations. I know that. But here's the thing. If we have those, if we say the most important thing is unless you sign on the dotted line, you check this box, you fill in the blank, you ascribe to this. Unless you do that, then it's not Jesus that unites us. It's not Jesus that saves us. It's that. And if that's what unites us, then this thing won't last that long. It'll tear it all down. And what Peter and James and Paul are saying here is do not place a burden on others that says, until you ascribe to this, until you join to this, we can't even be brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can't even look at you and think of you as a Christian. Because if you spend this season like the world tearing down and saying there is something else before Jesus and we preach that gospel to ourselves slowly but surely what will happen is it will get down, that poison will get down into the rock bottom of our souls. In other words, we're either going to spend the next month preaching and proclaiming a gospel of Christ alone and believing that and relating to others out of that and fighting for it. I'm not saying this is going to be easy. We're either going to spend a month doing that or we're going to spend a month going around in our heart of hearts saying what really matters is this. But no matter what, a ballot will not save us. An ideology will not save us. They are not enough. Only Jesus is enough. And the apostles want to say, make sure you build your life on him and build yourself up in him and build others up in him precisely at this time when it is a time of tearing down. You must build up.
Let's go there. How to build up in times of tearing down. In verse 6, the apostles call a council together, again, and they say, they, they bring it together because it's like, we've got to deal with this Jesus thing once and for all. We've got to make it clear that Jesus is enough, that nothing else is, that it can't be Jesus plus something else. It's just got to be Jesus is enough. And there are three things that they say, ways to build up. Three things they communicate. And so what happens is actually, it's interesting. It's kind of like you go through the different apostles. They each have a chance to like give a little speech. And so each of them kind of tells us some one way to build up in the midst of this season. And the first one is Peter. And he says, and this one I'll hit quickly, recommit to the grace of the gospel. Peter again says not to put an unnecessary yoke on them and not to test the Lord. And why does he say don't test the Lord? Because the Lord has already set a standard for righteousness, and it's Jesus Christ alone. And when we say there is something else that you must hold to in order to be for me to see and approve of you as a Christian, what we're saying is we're testing the Lord's standard. We're saying, actually, Lord, that might actually not be right. I think the scales, you've got it wrong. There's something else here that needs to be in the scales. And if you do that, then we can figure this whole thing out. So, Lord, let me test your standard. And he's saying, do not test my standard. Because if you do, what will happen is you will begin in your heart of hearts to believe that that standard is really what justifies you. And you will either become arrogant and puffed up, thinking that is some standard that you can reach and no one else is good enough to do. Or you will be crushed under that thing because you'll know really you don't fulfill it. And you'll become bitter and think that you can't do this whole spiritual thing. And you'll burn out. He's saying, don't go there. But go to the grace of Christ. Don't test that standard. It's Christ alone. Start there. Second, remember the grace you received. Paul and Barnabas stand up in verse 12. Just one verse. And it says, as they fell silent, they listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. This is interesting. Because Paul is known as the great theologian, right? The great theologian. And yet, he's the one who doesn't give any of the theological argument. In fact, instead, he just tells the stories of how people came to Christ. And what's interesting about that is those stories of the people coming to Christ are stories in Acts that often are stories that look a lot like the Old Testament miracles. It says they're miracles. And so a lot of times what happens in Acts, we've seen that the miracles actually look strangely like some Old Testament miracles. And what's happening there is what God is saying through that is, listen, I'm the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and I'm bringing my salvation just as I did then, now, just in a different way. And so these Pharisees who knew their Bible and knew the story of God, they would have immediately in the story of the Gentiles being saved, should have been recognizing the story of their own salvation. And to realize we were sinners too, and we were saved as well. We must, in this time, remember the grace that we received. Remember anew the story of how God began with us with nothing but his grace, and there was nothing that we brought to him. As immature as we were, as broken as we were, as confused as we were, as probably arguing, how many of us were arguing for probably things ideologically that now we're so against? It's like we... The thing is, we started, though, with the grace of God, and someone moved towards us in grace rather than saying, you don't belong here. Rather than just shaming us, rather than just essentially lobbing grenades over digitally to say, really, get lost. 
every one of us probably had someone who drew near to us in the midst of difference of opinion because of the fact that they said, you know where we start? We start with the fact that you are in Christ. First Corinthians, it's interesting. The, the book goes on that Paul has to reprimand the church because like people are sleeping with in-law. I mean, it's, it's a crazy story. All the things that he has to correct. But you know what he starts with? He says, you who are in Corinth who are in Jesus Christ, who are sanctified in Jesus Christ, he actually says. You know how he can start there? When he has to go on to say, but you've got a lot of growth to go. You've got a lot of a ways to go. Is he can start there because he says, you are 100% in Jesus Christ. And that's where I have to begin with you. I can't begin with going, look at you. You're not really a Christian. Shame will not lead to salvation. Only a Savior can. Remember the grace that you received and those who came alongside you. I was one of, I was the mouthiest kid. I know some of you are like, really? I can't imagine that. Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I had a family. I remember that I actually started, I don't remember why, I started attending a church and uh, third grade, and I sat for years. No lie, every Sunday I would get up and out. I don't remember why this happened. I'd step in the choir loft because my family didn't go, and I would watch the church service. I don't know what drew me there. And I remember there was, I started around the youth group, and there were, most of the families, though, they didn't want their, their kids hanging out with me. My family didn't have the best reputation. I was a wild kid from a wild family. We weren't really Christian. But I had one family who drew near, shared the gospel with me, and eventually I came to Christ. And that family, in the midst of that, instead of turning and looking at me and saying, when you get your act together, then, unless you put that together, unless you clean yourself up, you don't belong. But they looked at me and they said, you are a saint if you are in Christ. And through the grace that they showed me and they showed me, this is what you are to grow into. But they drew near first and primarily because of who I was in Christ. Not because of who I was in Adam. The story of my family. How could you draw near in grace? Versus just immediately saying, unless you do this, I want nothing to do with you. Refocus last. Refocus discussions on Jesus. James is the last one to speak. And he... He reminds them, he points to the fact of, actually he quotes from Amos in verses 16 and 17. And Amos was a prophet who essentially was at the beginning of Israel's exile when Israel had rebelled. They had failed. And because of this, God was warning them, saying, hey, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tear you down and then I'm going to have to build you up. And then what he says in verse 17 is, why does he build them up? That, so that, to the result that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. See what he says is, you were sinners who with apart from me are lost. And I've saved you so that you might go to other sinners who apart from me are 100% lost. So you can make me known to them. The same grace I make known to you, you without mixing it, make it known to them. And so what James is saying is we must refocus in this time all of our discussions and everything on Christ. You know, one of the things 
Because often what we do is, again, it becomes about everything but. This week, I've been wrestling a lot with these realities, pastorally, thinking about what in this time, how do we navigate it, how do we do it faithfully, how do we do it well? I know there are a thousand, again, I'll just say it again, a thousand issues that we could talk about, a lot of caveats, different things that I know, it's hard for me, I want to like, like whack-a-mole, I want to start hitting them and talking about them and addressing them. But we must get this principle first, that Christ is enough and we must begin with him. And as I've been wrestling with this the other day, just the weightiness of it. I just had to stop and I, I had to pull out the book of Revelation and I was reading when the new heavens and new earth come and I was struck by how Jesus says the groom, he said to the bride, to the church, to us one day, come. Just come. Come to me. And then here's what the church does. Then the church, it says, then says, Come. Now, the church, at first I was like, wait, does the church like turn to Jesus? And they're like, you know, like, no, you come here, right? Like, no, that's not, obviously not what's happening there. What's happening is Jesus says, come. And then the church, they hear that and they're like, they see that grace that they've been given and yes, this is ours. And then they turn and they turn to others and they say, come, come. They take the same grace, that same message. And they don't mix it with anything. They don't add anything. They don't put their own demands into it. They don't puff it up and make it something that works for them, but instead they just turn and they say, come, know this grace, know this one. And here's the thing, guys, in a hundred years, I know what's going on right now is very important, but in a hundred years, don't lose sight and, get, and have, not have perspective in the midst of this. We will, sometime in the hundred years, thousand years, whenever, when Christ comes back, we will one day hear his voice say, come. Come, and you will look across, and you will see people that that word that come is an invitation to them who right now you are so tempted to go down this road of just writing them off. We have to get this down first. We have to be a people who receive that invitation of come to me, and we turn, and we say come to him with all your wonky ideas, all your different ideologies, all your different things that I may or may not agree with, come because he is the one who matters and he is the one who saves. So in this season, who are those, are you tempted to turn and say, instead of come, unless blank, Anthem, it won't be easy, or it would be easy to tear down in this season. If we are passive and just go through the motions of where we're going to be formed by the culture, we will begin to just tear down. But this is not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is to take hold of the scandalous grace that saves people like me and you. And then to begin in the same way with others. And to relate to them fellowship with them, to treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ before all the other things. We are given words of death, or words of life, not death. So build one another up in Christ. Recommit to the grace of the gospel. Remember the grace you received. 
that we focus your discussions on Jesus. Because if we do, then we'll discover that even in times of tearing down, he is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, in, in times like these, Lord, we feel the, the, our hearts being tugged in a thousand different directions. And Lord, if nothing else, we would walk away from here just saying, yes, Jesus, you are enough. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know the sufficiency of Jesus, if right now they're going, is, I, I've never known that. Lord, call them to yourself. Open their eyes to see how that he's enough. Of all the things that they think that they have to bring to the table, help them lay them down right now. And finally, for the first time, just to let go and say, I can't, but he can. I'm not enough, but he is. And Lord, help us to see that that is our state apart from you. That none of us are sufficient, but you are. And so, Lord, if nothing else, we walk away glorying in the fact that Jesus is enough and committed to starting there rather than tearing down that we build up. In Jesus' name, amen.